listening to our look up podcast i'm dara and i'm greg and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in october in our cosmic diary when looking at faint objects such as stars nebulae the milky way and other galaxies it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Now, although it's not well placed in October, the summer triangle asterism or star pattern made up of the three of the brightest stars in the night sky can still be picked out shortly after sunset. If you look high up over the southwestern horizon, you'll find the trio acting as a great landmark in the early evening. The brightest star is Vega, a mere 26 light years away while closer to the horizon is the star Altair. It's the brightest star in the constellation of Aquila the Eagle. It too is relatively close at around 16 light years away. However, the faintest star of this group is Deneb, the tail star of the Great Swan. And this star is faint because of its extreme distance, a staggering 2,600 light years. Just imagine how bright this blue-white, super-hot star would be if it was seen at the same distance as Altair. Next we have Pegasus, familiar as the winged horse. Weirdly, for those in the Northern Hemisphere, it appears upside down when artistically rendered. The main body of the constellation is made up of four stars, Alpharats, Shiat, Markab and Algenib, referred to as the Great Square of Pegasus. Technically, the top left star, Alpharats, is the brightest star in Andromeda. It picks out the head of the reclining maiden. Now, Andromeda contains two objects of easy interest. The first is Almac, or Gamma Andromedae. This is an easy double star located at the eastern end of an arch of stars making up the maiden's body. A small telescope will reveal its two component stars. One is a blue-white dense star, and the other a red giant. Andromeda also holds one of the furthest objects to be seen with the naked eye, the Andromeda Galaxy. Some 2.5 million light-years away, it can be glimpsed in extremely dark skies with the unaided eye. The moon reaches its new moon phase on the 9th of October, a perfect time to look for the faint and faraway deep sky objects with no moonlight to interfere. But over the next few days, the moon will begin to wax and grow in its phases, moving past other celestial objects until it reaches its first quarter phase just a week later. On the 11th, the thin crescent moon will be beside Jupiter in the southwestern sky just after sunset. By the 13th, the moon will be closer to the red star Antares in the constellation of Scorpius. And on the 15th, it will have nestled to the left of another of the naked eye planets, Saturn, further to the south. And Mars is still hanging around in the evening sky as it begins to fall behind the Earth in its orbital racetrack around the Sun. As it recedes from us, it dims, somewhat less bright than it was at the end of July, but still well worth a look. The naked eye reveals it to be a fairly bright star among those making up the constellation of Capricornus. Its reddish tinge is obvious while a small scope might reveal some of the large, dark and light markings that cover its surface. If a little unsure as to its location, you'll find Mars to the left of the bright gibbous moon on the evening of the 17th, and 
on the next evening it will be to its right. The annual Orionids meteor shower is due to peak on the night of the 21st and early morning of the 22nd of October. But with the moon set to reach full moon just a few days later, there may be subpar views. Meteor showers are caused by the Earth ploughing into the debris left behind from comets orbiting the Sun. The comet responsible in this case is the famous comet 1P Halley, more familiar to most as Halley's Comet. This comet's crumbs plough into the Earth almost head-on, making the Orionids meteors the fastest of many of the meteor showers. The hourly rate is expected to be about 20 to 30, but in some years it has been much higher. Although not the most prolific shower, it's worth trying to catch a few. Wait until after midnight, looking to the southeastern sky where the radiance will appear in the constellation of Orion. Use your eyes to scan the sky, and if possible, head away from light-polluted areas to give yourself the best chance of spotting them. The 28th of October marks the end of British summertime, which means that we turn our clocks back an hour at 2am. We'll be graced with an extra hour of sleep and the evenings will begin to darken an hour earlier. And as we head on into winter, the hours of darkness will increase, providing more stargazing time in darker skies to the pleasure of many amateur and professional astronomers. And if you do take any photos of the night sky, then please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, which is rmg.co.uk, but now it's time for our cosmic news. Hello and welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. Every month, Dara and I come up with a news story that's broken in the last month and we give you the chance to decide which one you think is best uh, by voting for it on our Twitter page. Um, so, Dara, what have you got for us this time? Well... We talk a lot about exoplanets on our podcasts, mm -hmm. and I'm sure for our listeners who've been listening for a while, you will have heard us talk about Proxima b, this Earth-like exoplanet that was discovered just a couple of years ago in the summer of 2016, and it was really exciting because it was the closest exoplanet that has been found to the Earth. Mm -hmm. It is a planet that is orbiting around the nearest star to our sun. But on astronomical scales, we're not talking about really near. Um, this star is about four light years away. So Proxima Centauri, this red dwarf star, uh, orbiting around it is this exoplanet Proxima b. Um, people predict that, you know, if we use the current technology we have now, well, it would take a lot longer than four years to get there. It may take us around 70,000 years. So close. Not, not an ideal holiday vacation. No, I'd stick to the Earth and countries within it for now. Yes. Um, but the story I found this month I thought was really interesting because there was a peak of interest when Proxima b was discovered, oh, potentially habitable, and there was a good amount of time in between where we kind of thought, well, actually, it's not looking very good. Mm. It didn't seem to have yeah. signs of kind of those uh, kind of the things we're looking for when we're, we're trying to see if a planet is habitable. But actually, more recently the signs have been very encouraging. And that's yeah. due to a study that was led by a man called Anthony D. Del Genio of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies. And he's been working with a team of scientists. And what they've done is propose different climate systems um, that would allow for surface liquid water. So they've done lots of computer simulations, modeling lots of different types of climate that could exist on Proxima b. 
um, that would allow for liquid water to, to exist on the surface. Um, and that's what we want to find. We want to find an atmosphere that's suitable and liquid water. It's, for now, the way we think that life can exist. And without yep. these things, we don't think there's a possibility. Yep. But when it comes to habitability, it's not just the planet that we have to look at. We've got to look at the star that it's going around too. And different stars pose different challenges of their own. So Proxima b, I mentioned, orbits around this star, Proxima Centauri. Um, and it is a red dwarf star. Now, Proxima b orbits very close to this star, but it's not a problem because this red dwarf star is a lot cooler than our sun is. But in the past, we think this close proximity that it had to the star could have led to a sort of runaway greenhouse effect. If it did have an atmosphere, it might have got too hot, struck with lots of X-ray radiation from this star. Uh, its water would have been lost. Its atmosphere may have just been stripped away. Mm. There are also lots of other things that for a while suggested it wasn't habitable. So things like, um, we don't know whether Proxima b even had an atmosphere to start with. Yeah. Um, without these, like I mentioned, the atmosphere, the liquid water, no real possibility of life, we don't think. Another thing is that unfortunately, Proxima b orbits around that red dwarf star. And we'd think that if it was a smaller star, a cooler star, you know, they're not going to be as violent. These are actually the bad boys of stars. Far from the truth, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> they like to have lots of violent outbursts yep. and lasting throughout their lives. Yep. Our sun had a period of very kind of uh, energetic solar flares in its early formation, but now it's not like that as much. These red dwarf stars, different story altogether. Uh, in most recent years, actually, two very powerful flares have been uh, thrown off from this star. One of them was so powerful that if you were standing on Proxima b, you would have been able to see it with your eyes. Ah, So right. an incredibly <laughs> huge, powerful solar flare. Because um, our sun produces flares every now and then, sure. but they're certainly not visible to the naked eye. Not with a naked and eye. Certainly, you wouldn't want to look towards the sun anyway, but even if you could, you, not visible to the naked exactly. eye. Exactly. Um, Imagine living on a planet around a star like this. Yeah, quite. <laughs> not, it's not the kind of place you want to be. Um, and also, we don't know whether Proxima b has uh, a magnetic field. We're very lucky here on the Earth that we have our magnetic field to shield us from the harmful radiation of the sun. Again, something to think about when we're looking at habitability on a different exoplanet. We've also found that M-type stars, uh, like this red dwarf star Proxima Centauri, they're quite hot and bright in their early life. Um, so even if Proxima b started off quite habitable, well, that heat would have meant that its water would have been lost very, very early on, before yeah. any life could even take hold. There's the opposite to that, actually, thinking, um, when we're thinking about life, we want to find a star that lives for a long enough time that life can actually develop yeah. and form Absolutely. into something. Red dwarf stars are perfect for that, because they live the longest, but they're also very active. So you're, you're trying to find this balance of different things. Now, what happens when we think about uh, the negative effects is that scientists often want to look for the positives too. Um, so there is possibilities of how Proxima b could potentially be habitable. So here's a couple of things that were posed by this team. One of the things is that Proxima b could have formed further out from its star and then migrated, migrated inwards. In. Yeah. Many of the planets in our solar system, we think, have migrated throughout their, mm -hmm. their lifetimes too. So they've changed positions. So although earlier conditions, uh, you know, when it, the star was very young and close to the star would have been quite horrendous mm. if it had developed further out and then moved in, perhaps it could have survived this. The other thing is that um, 
if Proxima B had more water to start off with, so imagine that it had 10 times the amount of water that we have on the Earth, even if 90% of that got stripped away and, you know, evaporated due to heat, there may still be enough left on the surface for there to be liquid water. So, um, again, we don't know how much water there could have been or is, but if there was a lot more in the past, there could still be some there. Um, we also think that potentially, if it had a very thick atmosphere in the past, a lot of hydrogen, um, this may have acted like a greenhouse initially, but if that atmosphere was stripped away by that violent star, the atmosphere could have been left a lot more hospitable in the end, mm. not full of all this hydrogen, but full of more um, kind of the gases that we might be used to here on Earth, perhaps a bit more nitrogen, which sure. isn't very yeah. reactive, or some more yeah. oxygen. The other thing that they did to help um, kind of simulate and try and work out whether liquid water could exist is this team conducted a range of different simulations, uh, imagining that there was an atmosphere on Proxima B and that there would be water. So these are the kind of assumptions they have made. Um, they've put in parameters, so things like how far Proxima B is from its star and its orbital path around there. Um, to try and see if they can produce the conditions that would make life habitable or it habitable place. So things that they did, things that they changed in their model was the atmosphere. So they had sometimes an atmosphere which was mostly like RF. So lots of nitrogen, bit of carbon dioxide. They also tested Mars-like atmospheres. So those that are almost pure carbon dioxide. Yep. They even tested having a thicker and thinner atmosphere. They tested having oceans that were more and less salty than oceans here on Earth. They tested oceans that were deeper and shallower than here on <laughs> Earth. They tested oceans that were covering parts of a planet and then oceans that were covering an entire planet. And they also uh, added in there another parameter of if the planet was tidally locked. Tidally locked meaning that it's the same side of the planet facing towards its star. Our moon is tidally locked. We always see the same side of the moon. Um, and the last thing they did was test uh, for that planet to have an orbit like Mercury. So it's rotating three times on its axis in the time that it takes to make two orbits. We call this a 3-2 resonance. Yeah. So they've tested lots of different things, these range of possibilities. And from those range of possibilities, they've kind of made a range of different configurations so mixing and matching seeing what works best and they've run all these things through their computer model the one thing that they had to feature uh, in their model was a dynamic ocean this meaning that uh, if you're going to simulate water on the surface that it would have currents it would move from warmer areas to cool areas scientists in the past have actually simulated static oceans on Proxima B but to no avail now, what they found is that every case that they tested produced a planet with at least some surface liquid water. So that is really uh, hopeful. Yeah. In the case of a tidally locked planet, though, they found that the heat transport between the daytime side and the nighttime side would actually allow the whole planet to be habitable. Oh. So this planet is, I, I reckon, close enough to the star that it is heated on the daytime side and that heat transfer is enough to actually make the whole kind of ocean um, on this planet a habitable place. Um, they've also found that if the ocean is very salty, then almost the entire planet could be covered in a liquid kind of ocean, except the ocean would be below our normal freezing point. Yeah. Salt acts as a, yeah. like an antifreeze agent. Yeah, it, exactly. it lowers, yeah, yeah uh, 
the point at which liquid water can exist. The last thing they found um, beyond all of this is that uh, we, rather than what we found, is that we need to actually find out more. So although we know that there are violent flares from this star, we now have reasons to suggest that actually whatever the conditions are like, based on that it has an atmosphere and some sort of water, that there is a good chance of Proxima b being quite habitable. But they've said that it depends on future observations. Yep. The problem right now is that we don't have the tools to detect to its atmosphere. Yeah. One thing we could do is we could try and find out about the atmosphere if Proxima b transited its star. Meaning that from our position, we would see this planet cross in front of its star. And what we can do then is analyze the light. And as it passes through that planet's atmosphere, we can actually work out what's in it. Mm -hmm. But because Proxima b doesn't, doesn't transit do its star, no. we can't even do yeah, that. Absolutely. Um, but they say that in the nearly uh, kind of the near certain future, we're hoping to be able to detect the heat uh, emitted into space by exoplanets. Um, so as they orbit their star, we might be able to distinguish between an exoplanet that has an atmosphere and one that doesn't. Uh, we might also, with the technology we're hoping to develop, be able to tell whether it's a thick atmosphere or whether it's a thin atmosphere. So if we think about the planets in our solar system, Mars wouldn't emit much heat into space. It doesn't have an atmosphere to be able to... Or it, sorry, Mars would uh, kind of emit lots of heat into space. Its atmosphere is so thin it can't trap a lot of the heat. Yeah. Whereas the Earth is somewhere in between. We trap some of the sun's heat with our atmosphere. Venus almost on the complete opposite end. Its yes. thick atmosphere traps so much of the sun's heat, it's not emitting as much back into space. So... The thickness and the, com uh, and the amount of an atmosphere a planet has may be able to be detected. Um, we also would hope that these next generation instruments, so things like the James Webb Space Telescope, mm -hmm. hoping to be up in the next couple of years. Yep. There's also something called the WFIRST, the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope. That will be perfect for detecting the heat being emitted from these uh, exoplanets. And we can even hopefully use ground-based telescopes. So we've got the extremely large telescope yes. coming up very soon, hopefully, too. <laughs> and the giant Magellan telescope, too. So we've got lots of different instruments just on the horizon, almost ready to help us find out more about these exoplanets. Um, and the, the good thing about this, actually, is that the findings and simulations used here may actually be able to be applied to other, other rocky exoplanets around red dwarf stars. And this is really encouraging because red dwarf stars are the most common types of stars mm -hmm. in our galaxy. They make up about 70%. Um, so when we think about that, the odds of finding a habitable place are looking ever more increasing. Yep. Um, and although we know that these new telescopes have, you know, they have to share their time between finding lots of different things in the sky, I bet that they will definitely dedicate some of their time looking towards one of the closest exoplanets, if not the closest exoplanet so far, uh, that we've found to the Earth. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed. When this story first broke, I thought it was really exciting and then it kind of plummeted because no one really had much of an interest in it. But actually now I'm very much looking forward and hoping to see that Proxima B might just be a habitable place. Maybe it could become our summer holiday destination, Greg, <laughs> not too long from now. Fantastic. Well, um, that was a fantastic story, Dara. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we're going to turn this into a bit of a, an exoplanet double oh. bill, or actually a triple bill. I'll come on to that a little Our bit favorite. later. Yes, fantastic. Um, 
because actually it's it's a great time for planet hunting. There are loads of different surveys and missions um, up there at the moment, and uh, a new one launched earlier this year. It's called TESS, or the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. It launched on the 18th of April of this year, um, and it's already working. So it's very, very quickly has begun uh, working to try to find new planets. Now, it uses the transit method, which you mentioned very briefly. This is where the planet passes in front of its parent star, blocks out a little bit of its light. And every time it goes round for one year of this planet, which could be very long or very short, it depends on how quickly it goes around its star, uh, we see this blip every single time it goes past detect two or three of those, preferably three of those, and you've got a fairly good chance of, uh, of knowing that there is a planet going around that particular star. Um, and the reason why you need three is, is basically this. If you see a blip in front of a star, uh, that could be anything. <laughs> it, it could simply be that your instrument malfunctioned at that exact moment and that you, you saw a blip. You know, it happens. Um, the second time you see a blip... Yeah, there's a good chance that there's something around that planet, around that star, um, but you don't know if that's one object transiting twice or two objects transiting at different, different times. times. Um, so if you see a third one and the gap between those three, between each of so those the three, time the time period, absolutely, is the same, then you've got a very good chance that that is a planet. And this is one of the most common methods of finding exoplanets, isn't it? It's been it? the, the most successful to date. Uh, there are other methods, but the transiting method has been by far the most successful. TESS is currently looking at the southern part of the sky, um, and it is uh, looking uh, at each part of the sky. It's going to cover almost the entirety of the sky over the course of two years. Um, it's going to look at each part of the sky for 27 days. It's set up so that it has um, 16 what we call CCDs. They're effectively cameras. Um, and each one of these CCDs can see a wide part of the sky. Uh, by setting up these 16 CCDs in a vertical strip running from effectively the equator of the Earth down to the, the South Pole or up to the North Pole, depending on whether it's looking at the southern sky or the northern sky, it stares at that region for about 27 days and then it slowly it revolves itself round a little bit so that it covers a new part of the sky at the equator, but actually at the pole it stays fixed. So it's going to be looking for 27 days around the equator, each region around the equator is going to look for about 27 days, but at the poles it's actually going to be staring at it for an entire year, and with varying differences in between the, sure. the equator and the pole, where you get more or less overlap. So it will basically, like you mentioned, cover the entire southern hemisphere? In fact, the entire the entire sky is going to flip to the northern hemisphere once it's done with its first year. So it's year. spending about a year doing the bottom half and then the and following then a year, year. doing the north sure. half, absolutely. Okay. Uh, it is looking mostly at the relatively nearby stars in our galaxy, anything between about 30 and 300 light years away. So Proxima Centauri, four light years away, very, very, very close neighbourhood. 30 is still pretty close. 300 is a fair way away, but then again, given that our galaxy is 100,000, 200,000 light years across, we're still looking very, very, very close. 
And there's a good reason for that. It wants to look at planets that could be followed up by da, 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 James Webb Space Telescope, oh, which telescope you mentioned as well. This telescope is used for everything. It's going to be used for absolutely everything. Um, and it's also, it's deliberately uh, placed it, the region that it's staring at for an entire year, so at the poles, in the only places in the sky that James Webb can stare at also at any time. James Webb is going to be in a slightly peculiar orbit. Um, it's going to be out past the moon, and it's always going to have to stare away from the sun. It can't look towards the sun, which means that it can see about mm, half of the sky, but it also can't look directly away from the sun due to the way that it's built. So it can look at a, what we call an annulus, which is basically a, um, a circular strip of the sky, okay. which is a certain distance away from, uh, a certain angle away from the sun, but not too far away from the sun. It's just the way that it's been built and the way that it needed to be in order to work. There is a certain region at the North Pole and a certain region at the South Pole which will always be visible to James Webb. So these are the areas where if you've got, if you've got loads of exoplanets to look at, um, that's where James Webb is going to be able to cover best. So Tess has deliberately designed, been deliberately to designed match to match that particular region. Very clever. Clever indeed. Um, now, because it's only staring at most places for about 27 days, the longest period planet it's going to be able to get away with finding is at, uh, about two weeks, 12, 12 days, give or take. Um, because it needs to get three detections in order to be certain. You can do it with less than that. It is possible, um, but it's far less certain. So ideally, you'll be finding relatively short period planets. However, if you're staring at the poles for an entire year, then you can do anything up to about four months. So you can go, f you can get uh, smaller planets which make less of a dip. So you can you can be more certain that that was an actual dip and you're not because you're dips. seeing lots more of them. Um, and you can look for longer period planets, closer and closer and closer towards the one year goal, which is of course. Our Earth, absolutely. And that's one thing they've struggled with recently, haven't we? We found loads of planets that are really, really close to their star or really big, yeah. but we've failed to find the much smaller ones that maybe are a little bit further out. And it's for this exact reason. Smaller planets make a smaller uh, dip in their star's light, so they're much harder to see. Um, and if you want to see a planet which takes a year to go around its star... You've got to be watching it for You've got to watch it for three years, minimum. Four years, preferably. Um, now... Tess will only be looking for two years and only one year in each direction. So it's probably it's not going to find anything likely like exactly like our own Earth. But it's hopefully going to find about 20,000 exoplanets based on the current numbers that we expect. Uh, many of them will be relatively small planets. Uh, about 500 to 1,000 will be in this Earth-super-Earth Earth range. So anything from the mass of the Earth up to maybe 10 times the mass of the Earth. Something along those sort of lines. Just to kind of uh, point out, 20,000, you just kind of glossed over that. And I was, we've not even found close to that many exoplanets no. yet. We found, what, three, nearly 4,000? Three four, yeah, something along those lines. Um, and what was it? The Kepler Space Telescope has found 2,000 
yep. or so of those confirmed exoplanets. Yep. That has been the best telescope we've had so far. And yep. this is going to find about 10 times more than that. Yep. And it's, it's mainly because uh, Kepler stared at a relatively small region of the sky for a very long period of time. It was trying to find planets much further out. It's trying to find longer period planets. With TESS, because we're less concerned with finding the longer period planets and just want to find lots of them nearby, we're staring at the entire sky. 85-90% uh, of the sky will be covered at some point over the course of its mission. So, fantastic. Um, it's also going to do something called astro-seismology. So, uh, I seismology... I hurt our heads with big webs all the time, Greg. All the time. Uh, seismology, of course, on the Earth is the measurement of earthquakes. Sure. Um, astro-seismology is uh, looking for quakes on stars, sort of. Um, stars are... Uh, they're spherical objects that basically they ring constantly. They're constantly vibrating because of what's going on inside them. Um, earthquakes on the Earth helped us determine that the uh, the outer core of the Earth must be liquid because you could see certain vibrations went the whole way through the Earth, but other ones could only go. There was a um, other vibrations could own could, couldn't be seen the opposite side of the Earth. Um, the same sort of thing can be done for stars. You can use different types of vibrations to understand the interiors of stars. And by staring at stars for a long period of time, you get to see these little vibrations. You add them all up and you get uh, a picture of what's going on inside the star. Because okay. you can't cut a star apart and take a look on the inside. Oh, so you've got, to use, you've got to use other things, unfortunately. So first light for TESS uh, began in July. Uh, and as I said, it's already producing data, even this quickly. Uh, the first, ob uh, first observation that it published was uh, just observations of a comet in our own solar system. So already an idea uh, to show how a device carefully designed for one purpose, really, finding planets, can be used to look for quakes on stars and also observe things within our own solar system. So uh, this is what astronomers love to do. They love to find ways of uh, using devices that, were not originally intended yeah, because you may as well the data's there so you can use that to try to find more um the first planet found was reported on the 18th of september which is only two days ago from the point that we are recording this right now so very very hot off the press information um around uh, a star in uh, what's called the pi mensai system it's a super earth it's uh, a few times more massive than our own planet, um, and it orbits its star very, very quickly, once every six days. So that puts it very, very, very close to its star. Um, exceptionally quick. So okay. certainly nothing like our own planet Earth, at least in that regard. Um, that star actually already... We knew that there was a planet around that star already. We had found a super Jupiter, so a Jupiter-sized Jupiter planet with even more mass than that, um, around it too, uh, orbiting once every 5.9 years. So we knew that there was a long-period planet around this particular star already. So this shows TESS's ability to, show, to see smaller planets, which is its aim, around even previously studied stars. So this is a planet that we'd, um, a star that we'd already studied, hadn't found anything small around it. But showing that we now can now we can. see more. Yes. There are plenty of future exoplanet-focused missions um, to be launched or started in the next decade or so. These include uh, CHAOPS, which is going to be looking at exoplanet atmospheres. So rather than finding new planets, it's going to be looking at planets that we already know about and studying their atmospheres in a similar way to how you just uh, described using uh, this 
um, method where light passes through the atmosphere of the planet while it's passing across its star. Um, then there's, of course, the James Webb Space Telescope, which one of its major, uh, major um, projects is going to be doing a multitude of tasks surrounding exoplanets, including atmosphere observations, finding new exoplanets, all sorts of characterization. And there's Plato, which is designed to look in part for rocky planets around stars like our own sun. Plato's going to start pushing that region where you find small rocky planets up to about a year's period. So, so they're looking for those Earth-like... Absolutely. So perhaps this last one will finally find a truly Earth-like planet, at least in those regards. Whether it will be habitable... Different we'll question. Have to see. Absolutely. Now, I promised that this was not just a double bill, that this was, in fact, a triple bill. And I can't finish today without mentioning a quick bonus story from the uh, Dharma Planet store, uh, Survey, um, a ground-based robotic survey on Mount Lemmon in uh, Arizona in the USA. Um, it recently discovered a super-Earth planet, which is potentially the most common type of planet in the galaxy based on our current understanding. Uh, and it's around a member of the star system 40 Eridani, uh, which is a trinary star system. So that's three stars all orbiting around one another. But that's relatively common too. Um, so nothing particularly surprising there then. Except... I knew this was coming. ...that serious Star Trek fans might realise... They might recognise the name 40 Eridani. Uh, it's the star system of the planet Vulcan, which is the birthplace of one Mr. Spock. Uh, so is this, is this Spock's home then? Yeah, so have we found the legendary home of the logical pointy-eared aliens whose eyebrows are truly on fleek, whatever that means? Um, well, actually... Maybe. Um, the planet's about nine times more massive than the Earth, so already a bit of a stretch or a squash with the, the gravity, to be honest. Um, but it is in the habitable zone of its star. If it exists. You see, there's a problem. It's already been suggested that this might actually just be a bit of a data blip. Um, as oh, the signal Greg. just so happens to repeat with the same frequency as the star spins. So in other words, it might just be a feature on the, the star. star that we're seeing rather than uh, actually the, the planet going around it. Mm. Uh, it's a shame, but unfortunately that does happen at the forefront of science. Nice. Yeah, the so coincidence two... of that happening... Yeah, unfortunately, it, it, it happens. And sometimes, so we've got two effectively rival papers, uh, one published after the other. Um, one analysed this signal and said it's the rotation of the star. The other analysed the signal and, and said, said it's, it's a planet. Accident. We'll find out over time whether it actually is true. Maybe I'll come back to it later on if they come to a conclusion. I but Vulcan! <laughs> <laughs> One of these stories, we're just like keeping our fingers crossed. Let's Absolutely. Hope Proxima B is like habitable. Let's hope this Vulcan well like really exists. <laughs> and let's hope Tess finds all those 20,000 oh, yeah. exoplanets. The important one. Yes, that's the important one. Well, brilliant story there, Greg, as always. Um, we're going to put our stories to the vote on Twitter as we do every month. So on the first of the month, you'll find our Twitter poll. We'd like you to listen to our stories and then vote for your favourite. And if you have been listening over the last couple of months, well, you know, we always uh, 
going to let you know the results of last month's poll. So last month we had two stories. Greg's story was about the launch of the Parker Solar Probe. And then I was talking about Spitzer's 15th birthday and all the things that it achieved in that time. And once again, Greg, you oh, have no. clinched the polls. <laughs> 74% of you guys enjoyed the Parker Solar Probe story, leaving a 26 uh, for Spitzer. So like mentioned, uh, please do vote for our stories this month. If you also listen on iTunes, our podcast is available on there too. Rate us if you enjoyed listening. Uh, other than that, we hope you enjoyed our podcast this month. So we'll see you in a month's time for our next look up. Thank you.